0: Well, we continue looking at what it means to be a, a growing church in a growing, groaning world, uh, looking at the book of Acts as our guide for that. We're looking at Acts 15, 36 through 18, 22 today. It's also known as Paul's second missionary journey. <clears throat> He revisits the churches that he planted with Barnabas not long before this and also heads out west a little further into uh, what we know today as Greece, planting churches. Interesting that the, the churches he revisits, having already planted them, are in almost exclusively in what we call Turkey today. I don't know about you, but I don't really think about that as and forget that. It has such a foundational nature in the beginning of the Christian church, that whole region of modern Turkey and modern Greece, our roots as a New Testament church, as a church of non-Jewish people. Through all these visits, uh, God, God is at work as he always has been, to to bring a people to himself from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. And this week we're going to kind of overview that second missionary journey. We'll focus a little more narrowly on the, the, the situation in Philippi with the Philippian jailer and a couple of other events. And Lord willing, Pastor William will dig into Paul's visit to Athens in Acts 17. That's our plan these next two weeks, today and next week. There's obviously a lot here in this passage, as always is the case, but it's a big passage as well. So we're going to just scratch the surface of this passage and scratch the surface of one of the most profound truths, one of the greatest sources of comfort and confidence available to you and I today. Well, what is that? You'll, you'll have to read along with me here and listen as we explore God's Word. Now let's read together Acts chapter 16. We're going to read verses 16 through 34 of God's holy, infallible, life-giving Word. We're going to pick up in Acts 16, verse 16. After Paul and Silas have gotten to Philippi. And they've encountered a woman named Lydia. They've met some other women at a place of prayer. And we read in verse 16 of chapter 16, it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl, having a spirit of divination, met us who was bringing her master's much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans." The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into the prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there came a great earthquake. So that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. And he called for lights, and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. This is God's word. Father, we come before you. Would you meet us here and encourage us? Would you meet us here and give us hope in our circumstances, no no matter what they are? But we come to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I did skip a few verses there. Mostly because I wanted to really get to that part that says, What must I do to be saved? Those, those words have a, a special history with me. That question, what must I do to be saved? And it's one of the, the silly points of my Christian walk as an early believer. Uh, it's a question here that this pa- the, the, the jailer in our passage asked Paul some 2,000 years ago. But I had a friend more than 20 years ago who a co-worker asked him almost verbatim that very question. Hey, what, what must I do to be saved? And I remember my friend telling me that story. And I thought, wow. I never get anyone asking me that question. I can handle that question. This is before I had evangelism explosion training. And now, you know, a uh, little side ad there. No, I, I really, I just wanted that kind of a softball question. I thought, wow, wouldn't that be easy? And what's wrong with me that I'm not kind of getting this response from people saying out of the blue you know I pictured somebody just coming up you know you're you're maybe you know you're ordering coffee at Panera or something and they're just like cashier just looks at you and goes what must I do to be saved or maybe you're just walking down the street and someone just comes up to you and says what must I do to be saved and you share the good news you say believe in the Lord Jesus and they just go okay and everybody rejoices right and maybe it's just me, but I, that's the kind of image I had in my head. And I don't know where it came from. Because it's not really what happened to my friend. He got that question, but there's more to the story. It's not what happened here with the jailer either. He asked this question, but the question, what must I do to be saved, does not ever come from out of nowhere. It's not going to happen just walking down the street, most likely. God could do amazing things, right? The question comes from God's activity in the world. The question comes when God's people embrace their role in the world. The question comes because the Lord of history... Calls you into his story. So you, Christian, embrace this supporting role in the drama of life. That's that's when this kind of question pops up. When in the drama of life, which is real and profound, which includes suffering and successes, when, when you embrace that role as God provides it to you, as you see your circumstances as something in God's hands, then then you you embrace what we call God's sovereignty. You embrace God's control. And and more than that, whatever you think of those words, whatever images they, they bring to your mind, bear with me and and consider that from that place, you begin to become the person God would have you to be. You begin to grow in confidence and decision-making and a way of life that people see and hear and know who this God is through you and your presence in their lives. In other words, that people begin to see who God really is. As you embrace who He really is. As this one who is over all. That doesn't mean, right, that that everyone is just going to go, oh, what must I do to be saved? What it means is actually that a lot of people will resist you some of them will even reject you, and the truth is some will even persecute and seek to harm you. But in all of that, from this place of understanding who God is, as the one who is over all, who is sovereign, you can actually find in those circumstances as Paul and Silas did here, beaten and bruised and battered, chained up in stocks, chained up in chains, and Feet bound in stocks, uncomfortable, they're singing psalms and hymns, not for show, but because it's what's in their heart. And let's explore that in this passage, right? Because the truth is that if you will understand and embrace this supporting role in the overall drama of life, if you would allow God to be God, the star of the show, you'll find great comfort, You'll, you'll find great confidence, great hope as the lord calls you into his story and so first of all let's look at that in terms of god's sovereignty over external events over external events and uh we we don't have an outline for today uh, other than the overarching theme uh, because to be honest i really wrestled with this passage and didn't want to commit to putting down and forcing something. And so at this point, this is where we are, that it is God's sovereignty over external events is the first thing I want us to look at. And that is things like earthquakes. Right? If you look at chapter 16, verse 26. Acts 16, 26. Suddenly, there came a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. You know, if you want to picture what's happening here, Paul and, and, and Silas are in the innermost part of the prison. There's other common area outside most likely of where they were locked inside. They have their feet in stocks, kinda of like you picture the, the the pilgrims and everything, you know, with the, the wood and the people stuck in the stocks that way. This is like something on the ground. Their feet are stuck in, they can't move, they're uncomfortable. And this earthquake comes, and it shakes things so profoundly that the, the wooden frames of the building are, 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 are sent askew and the doors open, right? And the the chains that are bolted to the wall, they they come loose from the wall. It seems like perhaps even the stocks that Paul and Silas are strapped into are shaken so much that they come unfastened, that they could find relief, they could get free from that part of their imprisonment. Verse 27 continues, And when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. So he's in his house, sleeping. Great earthquake wakes him up out of bed. He comes out the door in the dark of night, right? It's midnight. And by the moonlight, he can see the doors on the prison all askew. But most likely, having some form of light in the house, maybe he lit a candle to get out of his house, he can't see inside of the prison. His eyes aren't adjusted to that. And his assumption is that the prisoners are all gone. And he was commanded to keep the best security on these. It would be a big deal as a Roman security officer to let any prisoner go free. But here, having already been commanded by the the town leaders to keep these guys locked up secure, and having already witnessed, no doubt, the violence of the mob... Is like, I'm just going to end it all now, other than suffer at someone else's hands. Maybe I'll find some honor in that even. It's a skewed view. It's a Roman worldview. And yet what? Paul and Silas, within the darkness of the prison, can see him across the way, perhaps with that candle in his hand, as they can see him by the moonlight, their eyes are fully used to the dark, And even if it's just moonlight, they can see him and they see him pull the sword out and maybe he's stealing himself to to finish the job. And what did this say? Verse 28, Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, do not harm yourself for we are all here. Verse 29, he, the jailer, called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear, fell down before Paul and Silas And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The clear implication of this whole passage is that God is at work through Paul and in this situation, bringing this earthquake and the dramatic events, getting the attention of the jailer. Because when you think about how did we get to this point? how, How does it become this situation where this guy asks how... What must I do to be saved? It's been providential guidance and even divine intervention. God, in other words, guided, clearly guided Paul and Silas to this town and was involved in all of the events and allowed the things to happen such that they are here in this prison. In fact, if you just go back a little bit to chapter 16, verse 9, we read, there's a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia, standing and a- appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go in To Macedonia. If you skip down to verse 12, and they came to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia. The reason that Paul and Silas are in this jail is because God led them to Macedonia because God explicitly worked through external events and sent them a vision and said, come to Macedonia, seeing this man in a dream or a vision. Paul follows it. It's likely that Paul stayed in the prison when the chains fell off and the doors all opened because he had this sense of God being at work. If God called him to Macedonia, He's going to go along and see where God leads him. And apparently that leads him as he's preaching the gospel and faithfully following the Lord to prison, to beatings. These police officers that beat him and the magistrates that ordered them, these police officers were called fascists. They carried these fascists, which was like a stick, a bundle of sticks with a hatchet, a little axe blade in the middle. It's, it's, it's the source of the word fascist. right? The violent, oppressive regime. They use violence and force. That's, that's where it comes from. These police officers had these sticks, and they beat these guys horribly. Horribly. And put them in the, in the deepest of the prison and locked their feet in stocks. You know, they're, they're not up at midnight singing hymns because they're religious and all. Up at midnight, singing hymns most likely because they're incredibly uncomfortable and they can't sleep, and so they cry out to God and sing, appealing to God, finding comfort and encouragement from the confidence that God is still in control and still sovereign over all things, and that if He called them into these circumstances, He is going to work for good in all things, as Paul would later on write to the Romans. Right? God works together for our good in all things, for those who are called according to his purpose. That God is at work, even in these horrible circumstances, in these external events, and, and, and we see that. We're back in chapter 16, verses 6 through 8. They passed through Phrygia and Galatia, and they were forbidden, it says in chapter 16, verse 6, by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and they headed on. Paul receiving that vision, they go to Macedonia. It's not clear, just from those words, how they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia as they're traveling westward on the road, the Roman road that goes through that area. Uh, Asia would be on their left, to the south, as they're heading west. And then they're forbidden to go there by the Holy Spirit. And coming along, they're they're trying to then go into Bithynia, which is to their right, to the north, as they head west, up into northern Turkey, which most likely would have led them up on that area that's just above that little body of water and below that other body of water, the names which I can't remember, uh, toward Istanbul, what would be Istanbul, Turkey. Big city. And somehow it says what? The Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. They were forbidden by the Holy Spirit from going to the left, forbidden, uh, prevented by the Spirit of Jesus from going to the right. Someone may have had a, a prophetic word in their party. Maybe Silas, he is a prophet. But it doesn't say that. It seems like it's some sort of providential circumstance happening. Maybe the border is closed. Maybe the bridge was out. Something along those lines that doesn't tell us. But is God at work in the circumstances funneling and channeling them to Macedonia? Paul will later have other visions. Chapter 18, verse 9 and 11. Jesus comes to him after these circumstances, right, after this account with the Philippian jailer and the beatings with rods, as Paul would refer to it later on, Jesus sends another vision to to Paul in Acts 18, 19 to 11. And he says, basically, no longer be afraid. You're, You're not going to be attacked in this city, in Corinth, do not be afraid any longer go on speaking and do not be silent I am with you no man will attack you in order to harm you for I have many people in this city And he settled there for many many as for a year and 6 months in Corinth And as has been the case as he stopped in each city there is a faction of the Jewish people that come and try to drive him out of town. And that happened in Corinth. But God, in his sovereignty, worked in the external circumstances through a Roman leader, the proconsul named Gallio, who basically said to the, the Jewish folks who wanted to kick Paul out, look, this is your problem. This is your, your religious debate. I'm not interested in it. I want no part in it. And the thing that that does is kind of like a double jeopardy thing because now they really can't give Paul a hard time because they will be threatening to destroy the peace. And that could bring them in trouble. So they wind up grabbing somebody else and beating them up. But Paul is spared. God brings about his plan through even somewhat of a hostile Roman leader. God God is at work in the external events. As the proverb says, right, he, he steers the heart of the king. He's at work in, in all of these things, in these external events. His sovereignty is at work. And just as importantly, it's at work in the internal changes. God's sovereignty is all about the external events and the internal changes. Flip back to Philippi, Philippi here in chapter 16, verse 11. This is as they first get to Philippi. 16:11. Putting out from to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in the city some days. Verse 13. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. Most of the cities Paul has gone to, there's been a big enough Jewish population. You only needed 10 families, essentially, to start a synagogue. There's not one here. And being kind of outcasts, the Jewish people would worship on the city limits, outside the city, often by rivers, uh, creeks, those kind of things. And so that's, the assumption is that we'll go find our people outside the city by a river. And so they go there, this place of prayer. Verse 14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God was listening. So here's someone who had, who had been attracted to Judaism, essentially, who was worshiping God. It's a, a technical term there, a worshiper of God, uh, someone who is on the, on the verge of of converting, not quite a full convert. She is Greek, Lydia. She's from a Greek city, Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a successful businesswoman. She's listening, verse 14 we continue, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. That right there. The Lord opened her heart. She had been drawn to the Lord. She was listening. She was seeking, we might say. She's curious. She's attentive. But ultimately, it is the Lord who has to open the heart. And He does with Lydia in this situation. The Lord opened her heart to respond to these things. The response to the good news never comes from nowhere. It's not coming out of the blue. It is because God is at work in hearts. Let that sink down for a moment as you consider witnessing to whoever's in your life that you you feel the burden to share about Jesus with, right? Sometimes you've been brought up, sometimes we have this impression that it's up to us that we have to persuade them that somehow we could mess up the telling of the gospel and push these people away. Uh, Actually, when Julia and I got married, Somebody gave us a family Bible, one of these big, massive, you know, it was somebody wanted to give a religious gift to the religious people, right? Julia and I, you know, we're religious. So they gave this massive family Bible. I'm, you know, it's like, you know, it, it must have been like almost, I don't know, I might be exaggerating. It would go boom when you put it on the table, okay? I like doing that, I like sl- shutting it too. So it said, I was flipping through it. And it had a gospel, you know, how to evangelize, how to share the gospel thing. And it literally said, you may never get another chance. Press for a decision. That's a lie. It's at best a good intentioned deception inadvertently. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter how many chances you get because it's not up to you. You are called to be faithful, to play that supporting role. It is not your job to press for a decision, it is not your job to beat yourself up when you fail. It is God who is at work in these circumstances, and you are called to be faithful. That God is at work in the external events, he's also at work in these internal changes. God has to work. Yes, don't don't hear me saying not to speak when the Lord is leading you to speak. In fact, I hope you feel a little more freedom to speak because the pressure should be off of you because all you have to do is testify. Great opportunity today. Um, I was so encouraged to hear the Crossroads in the Summer kind of organizing team is, is trying to get people to share testimonies tonight. What does that mean? You don't have to convince anyone there of anything. Share your testimony of, of what God has done. Give the glory to God. Make God the star. Right? And and If you understand God's sovereignty, how he's at work in the events around you, and you understand that he's the one who ultimately has changed your heart, that's not super hard to do. It's one of the beautiful things about coming together to worship together as God's people in this place where we get this sense of, it's really not about me. It's about you and you and you and you and you. It's one of the beautiful things of having such a a diverse group of people worshiping. It's like, oh, it's not just my people. It's your people and your people and your people and your people. It's not just young people and old people. It's people, men and women, all kinds of different languages coming together, young and old, all kinds of abilities and disabilities, all kinds of economic backgrounds and losses all kinds of educations and lack thereof, all kinds of things, brothers and sisters, that it's our God is that big. That alone then moves our hearts. And you know what's strange is we kind of get a little smaller in a really good way. We get a little more humble, which I think is the biggest thing we need, is the humility You think about Paul's conversion. Here was a proud, proud religious person. Paul would tell Lydia's church a few years down the way. Right? He would write a letter called Philippians, and it would go to, among other people, most likely Lydia, one of the first members of the first church of Philippi. It's probably Presbyterian, right? First Presbyterian Church of Philippi. That just sounds good, doesn't it? I don't know. <laughs> just kidding. So he sends this letter in which he says, I used to boast in, in being a, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Zealous for the law of God. Right? We read few weeks ago, of his conversion, right? His life experience had led him to a lot of knowledge. He was trained up by a very highly regarded teacher named Gamaliel, who was able, that teacher, to stop the the persecution of the church When Peter and John appeared before him, speaking those words of wisdom, saying, we need to be careful, or we might find ourselves fighting against God. And if it's not of God, it will die out. What is he saying? In a sense, Gamaliel is saying, God is sovereign. He's saying, God is sovereign, y'all. And if he's not in this, it will fail. These people are claiming something that only God could be involved in. So let's, let's see what happens. Let's not exert physical violence to make it happen. And he won over the Sanhedrin. And they're, they beat Peter and John, but they let them go. You know who he didn't win over? Gamaliel for all his wisdom. He didn't win over his star pupil, Paul. Who moments later, that was all in Acts chapter 4 and 5, A few minutes later, at the end of chapter 7 of Acts, we read that he's holding the garments of those who are stoning Stephen to death. And that he then begins to rampage the church, dragging men and women off to prison. Until we read in Acts chapter 9, Jesus interrupts them. Jesus sovereignly orchestrates events and comes into Paul's presence and says, why are you persecuting me, Paul? Saul. Jesus sends Ananias. Reluctantly he goes to welcome Saul into the community of faith. Saul can't bust in to the community. Nobody wants to have anything to do with him because he's been a persecutor and they don't trust him. But God sends Barnabas to welcome Paul, Saul, into the community of faith. Barnabas who comes alongside of him and encourages him. None of these things does Saul, Paul, deserve, right? None of these things are about his own choosing and his own actions. As one commentator put it when we were looking at that passage a few weeks ago, it wasn't Saul converting from Judaism to Christianity, but rather it was God converting a man from his self-righteous zeal to self-sacrificing surrender to the lordship of Jesus. Another commentator put it this way, God revealed himself to Paul not because of, but in spite of Paul's behavior. Don't hear the ideas of God's sovereignty and election and things like that as somehow those people who get saved are better than those who don't. Don't hear God's sovereignty as somehow we're puppets and and robots. Hear it as the unmerited powerful and effective work of God who's free to work how he chooses and he chooses in his own grace to save some sinners like you and like me who don't deserve it and despite our behavior he changes us and transforms us from the inside out. Is that not beautiful? Is that not humbling? Oh, we don't, we don't have time to to dig into this whole story. And when I think these things, you know, sometimes here's a little side note. I always want to like write an article and, and follow up with it, and then like life happens, right? So I, I don't want to pass by. What I think is so is so. So clear and obvious. At the end of chapter 15, the beginning of the second missionary journey of Paul, which the first missionary journey was Barnabas and Paul. This one's just Paul and Silas. Now, Paul is the leader, but we read verse 36 of chapter 15. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's return and visit the brethren in every city in which we preached the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia and strengthening the churches. There's there's a bigger case to be made. Number one, that really pride is, is almost definitely our biggest human problem. Even as Christians, especially some of us, like Paul, who struggle with it. But it's every one of us. And here's the interesting thing. And you might think, you know, I'm humble. In fact, I'm I'm down on myself. I'm so humble, I beat myself up. And I know I'm miserable and I'm a failure. As Paul will say in Galatians 5.26, that's actually a form of pride as well that both, both the arrogance and superiority as well as the self-abuse and inferiority, the provoking arrogance and the envying humiliation are both pride. Galatians 5.26, Paul calls it uh, In NASB, it's boastful. Other translations, I think, are better conceit. It's empty glory. The Greek is two words. Empty glory. Both of those things. Empty glory. It's it's a focus on self. It's a focus on me. It's a focus on my way. And I see that implied here in Paul's rejection of John Mark for a return to the field. And maybe there are objective criteria and reasons why you don't take someone along. But for someone like Barnabas, who has been your right-hand man all this time to come to you and say, I really think we should take him. What, I mean, we don't know the argument. You know, Luke tactfully omits it. But I mean, Barnabas. How much was he with Paul day in and day out? No one else was with Paul and Barnabas went with him. Paul, Barnabas sent Paul away to Tarsus, his hometown, to stay safe. And Barnabas called Paul back for the ministry. Barnabas, if you look through the text, it seems like he was actually the leader and organizer and the chief person sent out in that first missionary journey that Paul went along with him. And Paul's adamant, insisting. Essentially, the, the language there is he does not find John Mark worthy because he deserted them. And I think it's important to get that in, in your mind, because I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to want to elevate Paul. And we think about Paul's missionary journey and Paul's first missionary journey. All these churches Paul planted and all of this fruit that comes from Paul's ministry. It's like, oh, be like Paul. No. Except in that Paul is like Jesus. And so are you if you embrace your role, which is not to be Paul, which is not to be perfect, which is not to be self-demolishing, nor self-aggrandizing, self-inflating. It's to be who God is calling you to be. The role He is calling you to. Which might be teaching and leading. It might be praying and fasting. It might be success in the business world with good morals and ethics that people look to you. And you can share your financial successes. It might be Leaving everything and going into the mission field. It might be staying where you are and suffering. Don't miss the fact that this is one of those times where Paul's suffering seems to have brought about clear fruit. There were many times he was left for dead, and there's no apparent fruit. It's not a calculation where oh, I'll, it's, it's worth the suffering if I can see the results. Brothers and sisters, sometimes we just don't see it. We don't know. There is suffering that is horrible. And in this lifetime, unfortunately, we will never understand it. There are successes. that we don't understand. And the key to that is to recognize that, you know what, it's actually about God. It's about God being the star of the show. This is his story. He is the one at work in the world. And if we would embrace our role, which could be suffering, it could be success. Whatever it is, to embrace it, and to go with the Lord through it, trusting in Him, coming together with His people. There is comfort and confidence and hope and strength in all those things. In any situation. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace and your mercy that you have called us into your story. Help us, O oh Lord, to embrace the, the role that you have in, in this story, in this drama. To put the gifts you've given to us to work, to listen to your people as those gifts are affirmed and supported and encouraged. Help us, O oh Lord, to, to do a better job of equipping one another and sending each other forth. Lord, I thank you just in this, in this coming out of the pandemic, how we have some teams at work and things are happening. Thank you for Pastor William and, and his team with the Crossroads in the Summer organizing it. And the, the load is being shared. And, oh, Lord, thank you for our Camp Treasure Island team and how things are coming together and being organized and g- people's gifts are identified. And, Lord, would you raise up those remaining leaders we need for the kids Oh, Lord, be at work in it all as we continue to, to, to work out the plan that we believe you've laid on our hearts. Be at work in it, Lord. In fact, would you work in such abundant and amazing ways that we are humbled and take, have no temptation to take any credit? Because it's so obvious. There's no way we could do that. That it is you at work in the events, sovereignly in those external events, and, O Lord, at work in the internal changes that bear the fruit. O Lord, we will give you the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.